Good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Maybe you're ambitious and waking up to us. Uh, welcome to the latest episode of Criterion Cast. This is episode 188. We will be looking at spine numbers 734 and 735. The spine numbers get a little dice in the Blu-ray area when they're, it's all packed onto one disc, but they are two films. Uh, it's Monty Hellman's The Shooting and Ride in the Whirlwind. Joining me to discuss these films are David Blakesley and Trevor Barrett. David, Trevor, how you guys doing? I'm happy to be back on the regular old Criterion cast again. Definitely nice to chat with you and Scott, or you, Scott and Trevor. Yeah, it's good to be here. Back in the saddle again. I'm glad to be here too. Glad to have you guys. Good to get the the old cowboy gang back together again. Back in the saddle. We were not riding into our doom. Out on the trail. <laughs> Everyone just attacked that joke at once. <laughs> These are two films that were made uh, literally back-to-back in 1966, about a week separated their production, which is pretty interesting. Rod- producer Roger Corman apparently felt that uh, if you're going to go out in the desert and spend all that time getting out there, why not make two films at once? Apparently it didn't save them that much money on the o- overall, aside from the travel costs, of course. But uh, we got two, I think, pretty solid films out of it that I'm excited to discuss with you guys. But first we'll hear what Criterion has to say about it. In the mid-60s, the Maverick American director Monty Hellman conceived of two westerns at the same time. Dreamlike and gritty by turns, these films would prove their makers' adeptness at brilliantly con- deconstructing genre. Shot back-to-back for famed producer Roger Corman, they feature overlapping casts and crews, including Jack Nicholson in two of his meatiest early roles. The shooting, about a motley assortment of loners following a mysterious wanted man through a desolate frontier, and right in the whirlwind, about a group of cowhands pursued by vigilantes for crimes they did not commit are rigorous, artful, and wholly unconventional journeys into the Old West. Uh, yeah, I think especially for their time, you think about the time in which these were made, the Hollywood Western was still kind of kicking. I think the same year, Howard Hawks made El Dorado, which is basically a remake of uh, Rio Bravo, and very much in the same kind of half-jokey, half-serious tone. Paint Your Wagon was around this time. You know, the Western was kind of getting bigger in Hollywood as bigger and bigger stars were taking more lavish uh, set decorations along with them. I think uh, How the West Was One would have been around this time, too. Yeah, it's like, John Wayne, The Cowboys, wasn't that right around this time, too? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, this was yeah. Like, Hollywood is making huge westerns. So for Monty Hellman to kind of stow away in the desert with a couple dozen crew members, a few dozen people in the cast, this is very small films by comparison. And I think kind of when I first watched them however many years ago, I really felt like the old or the new Hollywood movement kind of started here more so than more famously the following year with the graduate and uh what else bonnie and clyde was that oh, year easy rider of course later i think that on, was a couple right? of years later yeah, yeah. It, it was yeah we we're like what 66 right here yeah yeah uh so monty hellman really kind of hit the ground running and really kind of saw the change in culture maybe just took his first opportunity who can tell but at any rate these are pretty rigorous films they're i think fairly distinct and only go together maybe by nature of their production but nevertheless have very distinct visions of the west was this your guys first time seeing them or had you seen them before well i i've written about both of them on my criterion reflections blog i'm not even sure if that was what 2015 probably 2014 it was a few years ago when i was in the year of 1966 i guess it must have been somewhere in the old version of my blog i, I did the 1968 on criterion reflections now i've got the the podcast going for 1969 and presumably on into the future so it's been a few years and i i enjoyed first exposure to them back then and and definitely enjoyed the revisit now i also watched them back when they first came out in 2014 before that i hadn't even heard of them before the announcement and those like that newsletter clue with the mayo jar. <laughs> and oh, the, yeah, that's right. The uh, And I think cowboy hats. You know, I'd never even heard of them until they started being rumors that they were coming out. And then when they did, but boy, I love them. Yeah, I confess to not being a tremendous fan of... I've only seen a Monty Hellman Goes uh, Tulane Blacktop. I'm not a, the biggest fan of that. I think his kind of... I don't know how to phrase the sensibility exactly. It's kind of vaguely spiritual, but it kind of... I think fits better in somewhat more grounded territory. You know, you can get into the shooting first, I think. That's a much more kind of esoteric film. It gets towards the end where it's essentially Warren Oates fighting himself, which is a very kind of like trippy, uh, almost Zabriskie Point-esque uh, 70s kind of feel to it. Yeah, the the acid Western, I guess, label has been attached to these films. And and they, they do have that existential, where are we and what's going on here, quality, both of them. But the but the shooting in particular is, yeah, definitely a little bit more out there. Yeah. 
Yeah, I actually watched Ride in the Whirlwind first because I'm such a big Jack Nicholson fan. I knew you starred in that, so that kind of had the initial attraction to me. And that's such a like kind of grounded, basic chase film. That was like, oh, this is very. This is not like an acid western at all. I felt like it was didn't feel like it had the drug influence. But then you get to the shooting, and it's like you have these very kind of archetypal characters that are lo- kind of larger than life. I mean, even Warren Oates's friend Coley, played by Will Hutchins, is su- such a goofball. He really feels like kind of a modern character more so than a classic Western character. But then especially Millie Perkins coming in as a nameless woman, this kind of bounty hunter-esque character who kind of comes in, kills her horse, and then demands that these two guys lead her through the desert. It's this very kind of arch setup. Very compelling, but very strange. I was surprised to see the same screenwriter as Five Easy Pieces, Carol Eastman, uh, since that's such a kind of grounded and gritty film itself uh, but this is so like I mean you're right David it's so acidy yeah well yeah I mean he uses these first person's kind of subjective shots just the the locales as well you know you talk about Zabriskie point out in the desert and all of that uh, you, you're you're definitely in this kind of weird alien space I mean it's recognizable and the landscapes are somewhat familiar because not only western movies but western tv shows I mean uh, Gunsmoke and Bonanza and Death Valley Days, all, all those old time, uh, you know, classic 60s Western TV shows were, were still pretty much in vogue at the same time. So a lot of viewers were used to seeing these locales, but there's just something a little bit shifted <laughs> about how the characters and the landscapes are portrayed, the, the starkness, the barrenness, the long takes of just people trudging across desolation and... Yeah, I don't know. There's just kind of just a little bit of a, a kind of an alienated uh, aspect to how the stories unfold, even though they are pretty classic pursuit films, both of them. You know, they're 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 about people on the hunt for somebody, and uh, will they catch them? Will the will the people being chased elude capture, or will there be a big showdown at the end? Well, well yes, there is, but it's how you get there. That's that's where the where things get kind of compelling and and intriguing. We're talking about the acid Western, which is a term I don't know if I understand entirely (laughs) other than I I know what acid is. I don't quite see it all in this one. I think it might be because of the essay that is included on your nice poster insert. Yeah, 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 the poster. That goes into into Monty Hillman's past on the stage and that he was very into Samuel Beckett. And those plays, when I learned that, you know, Beckett, who wrote Waiting for Godot, I saw the shooting all over in that. Just this sense of not, dude, what are we doing here? You know, like kind of what I might think of as a of a more acidy kind of late 60s existentialism to more of a, a really kind of spiritual, deeper, um, and maybe this is just my, my biases, but just something a little bit more from the modern period, you know, after the wars rather than in the 60s of kind of a, whoa, what, what are, this is a doom, you know, this is doom and gloom and we've all got these missions and these quests, but what's really underpinning all of this stuff? You know, what's going on with civilization? So I, I almost saw the shooting as, as a really more modernistic take on, on the Western that, you know, isn't, certainly isn't uh, linked to anything that was going on that I that I can r- recall in TV westerns or in Hollywood westerns at the time. I think it's very unique and and strange and beautiful. But I would almost look at it as hearkening backwards rather than looking at this things that I think of with New Hollywood and the acid western and things that I might see in the BBS box set or something like that. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, I think for me, it gets to or it anticipates a lot, of, like David said, the alienation that you get with the new Hollywood, which is true. I think of some of Beckett's work as well, and I think stage work by its nature is you're you know you kind of stick to the smaller casts and setting their films out in the desert gives them reason to only cast like two or three people or you know four or five, however many or a few they can get away with when there's this vast country that can fill in the rest, and there's a reason why these people would be cut off from one another. It kind of anticipates that idea that the new Hollywood films would get at in different ways, even in cities, people feeling cut off from each other. But I also think the new Hollywood films, in many ways, would try to link their modern protagonists to the cowboy lifestyle. You know, Easy Rider kind of did it most famously with the montage of the guys changing the horseshoes with the guys changing the wheels and their bikes. 
Uh, but also, you know, five easy pieces, two-lane blacktop, last picture show, the getaway, Badlands, Serpico, even like Taxi Driver. I think they all kind of situate uh, a similar kind of moral uncertainty and isolation and kind of these outlaw characters that, uh, you know, write their own laws and settle their own scores, which is very kind of an old, old West ideal. Do, do you happen to see any connection with uh, your top film of last year as far as Criterion release? Wasn't that uh, Renee's Paris Belongs to Us? When we're talking about isolation and, and all this doom and gloom? You're wrong on a couple of counts. One, I don't think that was my top film from Criterion last year. And, and two, it's not. Was it? It, it was on my top three, but it, and it's also not an Alain Rene film. Um, uh, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Um, Will you correct me? Yeah, Rivette. Um, <laughs> Rivette. Yeah, I don't yes, correct sorry. you. I don't correct you merely to uh, for the fun of correcting you. I'm just anticipating our listeners uh, yelling the same into their headphones. Um, <laughs> what is he talking about? Yes, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I I can totally see that. I think. Um, I don't know. I, I always associate Rivette with kind of bigger cast, though. I kind of the new Hollywood was always kind of about one or two people kind of pitched against the world or against themselves. I suppose. I guess for for me, it's that paranoia and that doom that's that seems to be just out of of your conceptual reach. Yeah, I can see. You know, that. there's something out there. There's something around the corner. Something is going on behind the scenes. I don't quite get it. I can't grasp it. I'm going to move on anyway, partially aware that I'm doomed. Anyway, it, sorry. It just kind of, uh, I, I saw that relation. And again, kind of going back to the older films and trends that were going on too. I'm not trying to, to, to take it all the way back there. I think it's just a nice film that kind of sits in the middle there and anticipates what's what's coming and and uh, nicely looks back to at some of the, the problems of the first half of the century. Well, I think there is th- th- that that sense of paranoia that you mentioned there very much does situate it in, you know, and, and the acid western isn't necessarily like it's a drug film. It's more of a state of mind film, whereas, you know, there are, you know, sort of sinister forces out there, uh, you know, a kind of a lurking menace that the uh, the the conventional story, the the surface story that we're all told isn't exactly how it really is. I, I think that's kind of where we're getting it more than a kind of a you know blissed out hippie type of thing. I and mean, th- this is actually pretty early uh, in the era if you want to really <laughs> parse out the the evolution of sixties counterculture here. Uh, you know, this is still things are still pretty clean cut, and there's a there's a certain you know, playing within the rules of the conventions of the Western. But like I say, it's just kind of a shift. It's just kind of a tilting. It's it's not like a full-blown, you know, mind trip out there. It's And and uh, and so, you know, the, the feeling of being stalked, of being observed from the outside, uh, and even that sort of post-Kennedy assassination. I mean, you know, the Zapruder film is actually mentioned specifically in the uh, commentary track as and, and the idea that... Th- the story that you're being told isn't exactly trustworthy, but that's the story that the the authorities are going to try to push upon us. And so, you know, there's that sense of disquiet that um, the people in charge really can't be trusted in the way that we were maybe brought up and raised to believe and acknowledge. And so that that's kind of where we're going with this story. And 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 you know, with the shooting, you've really got this this quartet of characters and the way they all kind of interact and juxtapose against each other is what makes this film particularly, I, it's probably my favorite of the two. Uh, although they, they both like you say, like Scott says, have their own distinct charms and pleasures, but I really like this one because you've got the, you know, the, the comic relief character, you've got the, the enigmatic female You've got sort of, I guess, the War Notes character uh, is is the protagonist if 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 we're going to have that conventional role, and then you've got the you know the young malevolent Jack Nicholson, and of course watching it from the hindsight of all these decades later and all the you know malevolent characters that Nicholson would go on to play, you just see so many seeds uh, sprouting in different directions from the from his. You know, the, he he really does kind of make one of those delayed star entrances, even though he wasn't necessarily cast, or or I don't think anybody ever had a conception of what his career would become uh, when this film was made. But uh, it's it's so intriguing to to see this in hindsight, and really in both of the roles that he plays in these two films. 
Yeah, I think his, I mean, all the actors are really well cast, not only because they're pretty uh, sizable actors in their own right, but they're very distinct personalities. You know, Warren Oates has such a kind of lived-in quality to him, even at this fairly, I mean, he wasn't famous at this stage at all, but he'd already kind of- None of them were, right. Yeah, lived a good deal of his life. Uh, and then Will Hutchins is just like, he looks like he just stepped out of bed perpetually, you know? Uh <laughs> And yeah. then Jack, of course, carries himself very well. And Millie Perkins, who's so, I think her, her presence here is so odd. I mean, she's pretty young. I think she was only like 18 when they shot these movies or something, mm-hmm. maybe 19 or 20. Um, but so for her to play this like very confident, very uh, commanding character, it creates this odd distance. You know, kind of when she first walked on screen, I kind of felt like she was maybe miscast. But as the movie went on, it just kept getting more and more intriguing to see her uh, kind of rule over all these men's lives, especially in such a landscape as the old West. Uh, it's, you know, there's, some- yeah, there's a certain implausibility to it. If you want to think about real life, but I think she actually pulls the role off quite well. And, and her claim to fame before this was that she was cast as on Frank and George right. Stevens film, which, uh, I kind of went through my George Stevens phase <laughs> back when we, uh, we were talking about, um, Oh, uh, well, I see the giant Shane, the greatest woman story. of the year, woman of the year. Exactly. That, that's the criterion connection there. It still is his only uh, criterion film, but he went on to have such an impressive career and, and filmed really some, some great landmark uh, titles uh, after that. But uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Millie Perkins is Anne Frank and now this is kind of her next big role. And I think she was kind of one of these, you know, child star, somewhat of a sensation. And yet, what does she do next? <laughs> and and she ends up kind of uh, making two appearances in these kind of offbeat, low-budget westerns. Yeah, I don't think that's too uncommon. Sometimes for young actors, they want to kind of distinguish themselves from whatever made them most famous, you know, so they'll take these kind of offbeat, very small films. I think that happens a lot nowadays, especially. And so interesting wasn't she like a neighbor of Monty Hellman? I think that came out yeah. in the commentary tracks. Like they, they were literally like next door neighbors up in Laurel Canyon. So it was just a natural, right? Yeah. Uh, the thing I was going to say earlier is that, you know, you find a ton of uh, classic Hollywood films in which women kind of led gangs in the old West, but they're usually like Johnny Guitar or 40 Guns. They're older women who have had time to, uh, you know, probably lead one life before and then turn it around and realize they want to take command of their own destinies. So to see a woman as young as her, it's An ingenue, very odd. But, right. And she almost enters the film like a ghost. You know, she appears almost out of nowhere with a literal wake of death in her uh, in her rearview mirror. Uh, and with it, it just happened to be on my screen right now with uh, Coley running across the plain, spreading <laughs> flower. flower bag. Is that flower? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> such a good shot. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that's and that I guess just from a filmmaking craft, you, you get the sense that this is kind of, kind of a, a spur of the moment project, and that some of these scenes really were kind of just cooked up on the spot, but really, really well done. And and you, you know, I think that's maybe to get into the disc aspect or the release. This really is a fun disc to delve into, just about the making of the film and the fact that this kind of little renegade troop of, uh, you know. Halfway to broke visionaries put these films together as a real as a real fun exploration. Yeah, I mean sometimes that kind of energy is half the fun of watching is knowing that they had very little to work with except for their own inspiration for the most part. You know, just enough for costumes and basic fees for their non-star cast. Uh, there's not a lot to work with, but and it's the landscape too. As you said before, goes a long way, and I do think they film it in an interesting way, not only through the lenses and the uh, angles they choose but i think just the film stock it just looks so much, a little bit more bleached i don't know a little bit more unreal yeah the the color of the sky is in particular that that blue it, it's like this particular shade and you sort of see a reflection of that in the in the disc packaging even but there there are some really incredibly gorgeous shots i don't know if we've got screen caps or anything like that but i really am struck by the by the visual beauty of these films when they when they especially when they get out into the desert when that kind of long sort of you know what i consider sort of the heart of the film begins to unfold where they've kind of set out on their quest um they they recognize that somebody's been tracking them 
and now they're just kind of out in the void. <laughs> you know, that's that to me is the essence of this film. I mean, there's all the prelude and the buildup of, uh, you know, kind of putting the plot in motion and, and wondering who's chasing whom and, and what is this woman's motivation? Who is she going after? Uh, I guess th- th- those are those elements are, are substantial enough to say, okay, this this plot matters. I'm, I'm intrigued with how it all resolves itself, but it's really like once they sort of get out into that plateau of, of barren emptiness, that the real tensions ratchet up pretty quickly and, and pretty dramatically. I mean, that's, that's where I find myself getting absorbed into the tensions between these characters and trying to figure out, you know, which element is going to prevail in this. Is it, is it Warren Oates and his kind of gritty resolution? Is it, you know, the maniacal, homicidal, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson, you know, hired gun character who kind of calls the shots? Or is it this enigmatic young woman who seems to have, you know, in her own way, the strongest willpower of, of any four of them? I mean, I think I think it pretty. You, you never thought it would be Wes Hutchins. <laughs> no, <laughs> never, no, never I, no. Give yeah, me. he 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 was not going to survive that. Yeah, you figured something yeah, something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but that that's his role. He's he's a little bit of the clown, the buffoon there, uh, and and his end will be will be heart heart rending and tragic. Uh, but yeah, no, he's not the one who's going to walk out <laughs> alive at the end of it all. <laughs> He's lucky just to ride on the back of someone else's horse for a little bit. Yeah, but but he's the kind of classic uh, kind of comic relief there. He's the, he's the sidekick, you know. And so much so much threat to all of them too. And with very little said, I mean, you do have Jack Nicholson saying, "I'm going to shoot your face off" or something <laughs> like that. So so yeah, sometimes the threat is explicit, but really, there's just a lot that's unsaid and they do a really good job with the direction of, of where the characters are looking, what they're going to be doing. The acting I think is pretty great just because Millie Perkins does come off, you know, not as naive and young, but as a terror with a purpose. You know, she's not just some woman who's evil. She has a, a resoluteness to her. She is going, she knows her power over these men and she's going to use it against them and use it so that they're against each other to get what she wants. She's going to enjoy it in the meantime. It's not all just for her own end, her personal quest. She seems to be experimenting with this and enjoying it quite a bit throughout. And it it, it, it just kind of shows, you know, you're talking about how the excitement there and these visionaries out there without much budget, it shows how much these really talented visionaries can do. You know, you look at it and you think, well, with just a little bit of equipment, anyone could film this, but they just know how to do it right. And it, it's, it's, it really is inspirational. Yeah, kind of scanning through the film right now, when you noticed, when you point out the, kind of the directions people look in, and then David saying they're kind of lost in the void, I kind of noticed, just kind of scanning through this, and maybe this doesn't totally hold up. Like I said, I haven't exactly studied this all the way through, but uh, Helen will frequently change the direction, which they're walking, you know, kind of traditionally you'll keep the characters going left to right. That's kind of the way we Westerners kind of understand uh, characters moving through a journey. But here they'll go right to left. They'll start going left to right and then kind of double back. You know, there's the sense in which they're kind of swirling around a drain or just kind of ultimately lost in the desert and never able to keep a consistent route uh, and then with the changing landscape and everything seems to be morphing around them it actually kind of reminded me of, i don't know if you guys saw the gus van sant movie jerry where matt damon and casey Affleck get lost in the desert but that too used like a ton of different desert locations for what was only supposed to be one desert but the kind of aesthetic effect of it was that you know it's kind of unending and ever morphing and impossible to escape I think this was filmed up in your neighborhood, Trevor, up in Utah, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's a little bit south of where I live, but down where in the Lake Powell area. In fact, some of it, I think, was filmed where Lake Powell currently is because Lake Powell only came into existence a year after these films were made. Wow, so some of those locations might be underwater, you're saying? Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think especially in Ride in the Whirlwind. Yeah, he talks about that in the commentary of like Burt Lancaster calling up and be like, where'd you shoot that? He's like, well, you can't get there anymore, actually. <laughs> it's in the past. Yeah. <laughs> well, that makes this yeah. even more historically significant. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I love. I, I do love these films in particular because it treats the landscape as a real thing. You know, the, obviously, John Ford going down into Monument Valley is beautiful, and it you know that that place is larger than life. I mean, it just is. But that's not really where a lot of Western adventures probably happened because it's a little bit barren and and hard to get to and things like that. But that landscape of these two films. It probably was a place where a lot of terrible things happened, and maybe still do, and it just feels real. You can, I can feel the heat because it feels so familiar. I mean, if I go on a walk, I can get into some places that look very similar, and it just, just feels, it feels very real to me. I think that them of losing it, and and you know, each character even, not not just a couple of them, but every single one of the characters in here is in danger of fainting and, and passing out. Even Millie Perkins, as, as strong as she is and trying to be in control, she's, you know, this is a harsh place to be. Feels that way. And yeah, yeah, it's, most of it's gone now. You can now go swimming there. So plenty of water. <laughs> if you really dive underground, you can probably visit the original locations. <laughs> It'd be fun to find like the old fort and things like that. <laughs> the mine. <laughs> yeah, kind of contrary to that Monument Valley look where I think in those films... It tends to be more wide open spaces with kind of rocks and hills interspersed. And here it feels like there's, they're always surrounded by hills, you know, they're kind of in, well, literally a couple of years later, a sunken place. Yeah. And traversing these narrow little canyons where, you know, kind of danger lurks, you know, I mean, especially if you're being tracked and that's, that's, that's a, that's a significant portion. And of course, once, once Nicholson shows up and sort of joins the crew, uh, now the menace is, is very direct and present and kind of breathing down your neck, you know, it's, uh, yeah. And the way, you know, you're not sure exactly what is the relationship between him and, uh, the, the female character, the Millie Perkins character is, are they, are they lovers? Are they related? Is, is I mean, it looks like he's a hired gun obviously, but, but for what purpose? Uh, what's what's driving her? You know, uh, it's not just the fact that you know her was it her child, her little brother who who died. Uh, there's there's something else that's driving her towards this mission of vengeance, and it's never even completely really explained to our full satisfaction. But uh, you know, it, it's that's the engine that drives this thing forward, and keeps us intrigued to see how it'll all ultimately be resolved. I'd be curious on some of your thoughts, because I love how her mission, which seems separate from Warren Oates' presence, almost becomes a mission against him as well. I, you know, that whole twin or brother or uh, him playing both both the pursued and the pursuing person is such an interesting thing. Which we don't really know until the very end there, but right, right it's yeah. like, like she's yeah. enlisted him for a purpose but it's almost to his own destruction. And, and, and he says early on, I just got this feel and I just got to chase this thing. I mean, that's a, that's a very loose paraphrase, but yeah, he, he I mean, knows there are a lot of things right. like that. Like no one goes that direction unless they're planning to get lost. Right. Right. But he has to see this thing through the, to the end because, uh, it, that's just like his fate, his destiny. And that's just another element of of sort of the acid western like there's something pulling us along Uh, we don't exactly know what it is we just gotta you know get through this uh you know (laughs) this this march into hell to find out what's at the end of it all that that is to me you know it's not an overtly political you know commentary or diatribe but you know this is when vietnam is starting to heat up a little bit Uh, the the whole question from the younger generation what what does the adult world really have in store for us what is the system you know um, exploiting us or using us for those, those questions are somewhat in the background they're not openly declared but I think there is a little bit of a generational thing going on I mean there's not an older generation figure unless you know maybe the Monty Hellman or not the, the, the Warren Oates character is the the older guy, but he's not that much older. I don't think he's a generational difference. He's just a little bit more seasoned. But I think I think those questions are being asked, and I think even you know Monty Hellman and and Roger Corman and and this younger upstart rebellious brigade of filmmakers are in the same place. They're they're breaking out of the Hollywood system. I mean, they're using you know kind of a, a somewhat tried and true formula of the Hollywood western, and they're they're 
filming in in old sets you know the the little uh town setting uh uh what was that um Oh, what's the t- name of that town in Utah? I, I, Julie and I even drove past it on our little vacation out your way this year, but I can't remember the name of it right now. But that's a, it was a town that was well known as a as a western set, and they took advantage of that. So so they're using the production tools, but they're they're taking the story in some new directions. And and again, that's that's just a little emblematic uh, aspect of what what makes these things these films stand out from the from the pack. It's fun to see Western films at this period that are already kind of questioning, I don't know, traditional American values and the masculinity and the way that we see our heritage. Some some books have been doing this already. Like there's the 1959 or 58, I can't remember, uh, book Warlock by Oakley Hall. And then um, one of my favorite novels is but John Williams' novel called Butcher's Crossing that also goes into this classic western story but one that definitely is critical of 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 where we are and they you know they're both um right there at the beginning of the 60s it's a it's nice to see it on on the screen as well yeah i mean i'm gonna of course stand up for the the classic western in some regards as stodgy as it might be you know you still have had this films like the searchers uh and sergeant rutledge and even I think Red River to a certain extent, you know, you had films that kind of attacked the idea of the mythic Western and the idea that uh, all these people we see on screen are inherently noble. You know, I think uh, it brought enough stars in to play questionable characters. Oh, the, also the Westerns Jimmy Stewart made with Anthony Mann, or really the Westerns Anthony Mann went with anybody uh, were pretty, uh, could be pretty dark affairs. Yeah, that's a good point. A very, very, very fair point uh, to make. I, I agree with you. So I take back what I just said. <laughs> Not entirely. Not entirely. <laughs> I guess I. I guess there is a difference in degree, perhaps. Yeah. And maybe in approach to the criticism, because I know plenty of people who can watch the Searchers and they never, they, you know, John Wayne still is the hero. That seems amazing to me. It, it, it tells the story in such a way that it's playing with this heroic image in a way that people aren't going to, some of people aren't even going to notice that it's subverting it as well. But you get to this one and I don't think people can ignore it too much, but, but not to say anything against those, those predecessors by any means. I think they're doing fantastic work. Yeah. I mean, I, I do know what you mean. I, I think there are some scenes in the searchers that I really think if you, people sat down and thought about them, they'd uh, feel differently, but maybe they just are used to catching them in bits and pieces on TV or something. Uh, I want to bring uh, Ride the Whirlwind a bit more into the discussion, although we can, of sure. course, keep touching back on the shooting as as we see fit, uh, in part because I think Ride the Whirlwind is more consciously kind of a, a social conscience film without it being necessarily a social problem film. Uh, it's necessarily about these guys who are declared guilty purely through happenstance and association, which you see happen all the time, especially yeah, wrong place, minorities. wrong time for sure. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it takes you in further of how they become more criminal simply by being declared to be them. You know, they have to take on the role of the outlaws. They, uh, kind of take over this pe- these people's ranch and house and have to kind of at least loosely threaten them in order to keep themselves safe and have to stay a step of the law. You know, as Jack Nicholson says later in the film, you know, is it right to hang, you know, just for something, you didn't do just because that's what the law says you did. Um, you know, it really gets into some interesting ideas of what the right decision is in those kind of situations, especially in the old West, which, you know, had the semblance of a law, but largely was kind of up to the local authorities to determine how that law was applied. Or the vigilantes, as in this case, I don't think these guys are regulators or anything like that. They're, they're just, yeah, I suppose you're right. A group of men that are out there trying to, get their kicks as as well as you know under the under the idea that they are uh, maintaining law and order yeah and there's but the idea also i guess is there's no law that's going to come up for them for doing that you know it'll be like they'll be the last one standing so whatever their story they tell will kind of go yeah it's fantastic because of that i, I love this the quote you brought up too where where the, again the millie perkins character is talking with with jack nicholson and says you know what you're doing isn't right, and he just, as you said, says, "Is it right to hang?" You know, it's it it really is a dilemma that they're in, where you can see yourself in the same situation. I guess I better go get these horses, or I'm dead. And if someone's shooting at me while I'm doing it, I have to shoot back. You know, it's it's it is it is a, a problematic thing that the film explores very well. 
yeah, again, you know, putting it in the kind of social cultural context. I mean, this is this is a time when uh, even you know protest and violence and resistance uh, was was starting to become questioned. I have already mentioned sort of the you know the background of Vietnam, and and again, nineteen sixty six, you weren't quite up to the full riot level that you were seeing in you know the following you know sixty seven, sixty eight, even sixty nine. Uh, where you know a, a sense of we got to take we got to take uh, the law into our own hands because the you know the the authorities are out to get us. I mean, th- there's just elements of that there, but but this film really kind of talks about what do we have to do to survive when we're kind of caught up in circumstances that we really didn't have anything to do with, but we're still perceived of as as the criminal, as the enemy here. I mean, the, the, the film starts with a pretty classic Western trope, you know, the stagecoach hold up and, and uh, you know, some, some uh, you know, desperados uh, kind of, uh, you know, lay ambush to a, a passing, uh, you know, wagon there and, and uh, shoot people up. And, and uh, you know, of course, that, that sets the... Uh, you know the local uh, law enforcement brigades, the vigilantes, uh, in, into motion, and and that's basically what what drives this whole plot here. And then uh, you know men men who find themselves kind of entrapped by circumstances get caught up with you know the the true bad guys, the guys who truly are responsible, and and just that you know that merciless uh, prairie justice exerts itself. And and that that that's really that's that's the whirlwind <laughs> that we're riding in here, and uh, you know you you feel for these guys who uh, really are stuck by circumstances, um, and, and there there's no easy way out, and 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 of course uh, their their ingenuity is put to the test, and uh, and their the way that they connect with. Yeah, this this family, these these homesteaders out on the kind of barren frontier. Uh, that's the other kind of intriguing element here. Is like uh, there is a kind of a shared humanity that that they uh, you know, partake of for a brief period of time as they're kind of you know taking over this this uh, kind of household, this this uh, little rustic outpost there. Uh, but that quickly falls to pieces as well. And uh, you know the chase resumes. Yeah, it almost feels like when they're when they have that outpost that they're just keep trying to reclaim a sense of normality. You know, they play checkers, or Jack Nicholson goes check out the horses and have a brief conversation with Billy Perkins. It seems like they keep trying to do all these normal things and then keep being reminded of the situation they're actually in. Uh, yeah, it really makes me wish Jack Nicholson wrote more films, especially in this era, because I mean, this is a short, very tight film that never feels like it's rushed. It has very distinct characters at each turn and is constantly kind of gripping and thrilling throughout. It's really, I think, a really remarkable piece of writing. Yeah, it knows when to stop and slow down, and it knows when to just cut to the next scene very quickly. I, I like how, again, the essay, I'll bring up the essay again, calls him Kerplunk Jump Cuts. <laughs> just, you're, you're from one thing to to another. It, I mean, I'm sure that's partly just the editing as much as, or maybe even more than the writing, but it it really is a film that just knows when how to pace itself and the the writing's simple in the way that it gets into these depths it 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 is fantastic it's surprising even to to realize that you know he has this talent and this sensibility i wouldn't expect that from the man that we see these days you know or have seen for the last 20 years or even just saw a couple of years later i mean he you would go on to write head and drive. You said, which are very loose films. You know, there's no kind of tightness to them at all. Well, and I, I think that's that's the kind of unraveling of the '60s <laughs> right there, where kind of loosey goosey, anything goes, kind of becomes the order of the day. Here, you, you still definitely had to have some some discipline and some some rigor, and uh, you know, I again, I, I like that. I mean, I, I'll, I'll definitely say I, I like the the mid-60s even better than the late-60s. I like the late-60s quite a bit, but I like the fact that they had to still utilize that discipline and, and things had not completely <laughs> you know, gone off the spool quite as much as they did uh, as, as the effects of uh, you know drugs, freedom of expression, you know all, all the countercultural extremes kind of came to full, full-blown uh, extravagance there. Uh, yeah, there's there's definitely some some liberties taken, and then there's some 
some extremity that is kind of interesting to to investigate but but there's there's just a tension here and again i i I love this this cast you know there's just such an interesting uh variety of personalities it's it's quite remarkable when you look at that it's like how did this all come together you got harry dean stanton a young Harry Dean cast as Dean Stanton (laughs) and and Cameron Mitchell. Again, I was watching this with my dad uh, who's, who's visiting and, you know, he, he recognized the face of Cameron Mitchell even more than some of the other characters, just because Mitchell himself was just such an iconic, you know, omnipresent in so many, you know, stock Westerns, but he definitely lent some of that continuity uh, to where this film wasn't just uh, a bunch of kids just uh, improvising. There is, there is a, there is some credibility to all of this, and and again, I mean the, you know the sets, the the plot mechanics, all those things were were really, uh, very well executed, and uh, pun slightly intended, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even for me, I have no familiarity with Cameron Mitchell aside from this film, but he carries such a, a an authority from the moment he comes on screen. I think uh, he just has that face you can trust, kind of thing. <laughs> It's an interesting role for Jack Nicholson to write for himself, you know, in the his role in the shooting feels like more kind of uh, kind of thing he would have fun with as the years go on. But this is such like an innocent kind of uh, youthful character. You know, he's clearly positioned against the two other guys as less experienced and less sure of himself. He's very resourceful, as we'll see, but he's still kind of has a bit of the wide eyed night TV that uh, Nicholson would rarely get to play in part because he became a star when he was in his 30s. But I think he's quite good at it. Uh, he really carries the film, and especially towards the end when he really starts to get into kind of existential wonderings about his place in society and against the law. I think he really carries that emotional journey really well. Yeah, I agree. He's got this innocence that wants to to stay put, even though around him it's forcing him out of it. But he, he wants to keep grabbing back onto it. I think it he does really well. I hadn't really considered that before. But yeah, he's he's fantastic at it. And is there a later Jack Nicholson film that does anything similar? I can't think of it. No, this is probably <laughs> is. about as vulnerable and as as uh, you know. He's a little bit an easy writer. Yeah, yeah. Even there, he's he's still kind of um, a well, smart aleck. That's not exactly the word, but yeah, but yeah. He's he's definitely a misfit. Uh, but he's he's still got more authority. I mean, he's he's a he's a trained lawyer at that point, and he he's kind of a conscious rebel and easy rider. But here he's really is just kind of a poor sap who got caught up again in the whirlwind and is desperately trying to find a way out. And and yeah, your heart does kind of go out to him because he doesn't exactly deserve the fate that befell him. Uh, unlike some of the other guys who you know, get strung up rather mercilessly at the end of it all. Yeah, and I think, like I was saying earlier, the journey of kind of turning them into criminals, I mean, by the end of the film, they've killed somebody and they really are, like, generally wanted for good reason. Right, yeah, they've been hardened by circumstance and by desperation, for sure. And I think he, I think that's part of the journey that he has to go on that I think he carries very well is realizing that he is kind of out of options. I was wondering how you guys read the ending of the film because I think the first time I saw it I got the impression that they were going to catch up with him eventually and there was no kind of outrunning it but this time I got the impression that he gets away yeah I've wondered each way as well and and had a similar thought when I finished it last night again is you know he he may be far enough ahead with the sacrifice of his friend to to get away but he's never going to be himself again and I don't mean just because of what he's been through I mean he can never be himself in society again because right. he is an outright murderer now. I mean, yeah, he had he had reason. He may be excusable if people are willing to listen, mm-hmm. but people aren't. And so he's going to have to continue doing these kinds of things. Well, and, and Nicholson's actually the last man standing in both of these films, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you guys about your thoughts going back to the shooting and him being the, the, the final shot in that one as well. I... I think they're quite different endings, mm-hmm. but it, it's an it's an interesting connection, and it makes me wonder why is he the last man standing or the last shot at least in the shooting? Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know that there's a there's not really a conventional straightforward. Here's why that is. Yeah. but it is. I mean, because 
you kind of get the sense in the shooting that everybody else died in the in the hail of bullets there you know i didn't i didn't get the sense that um warren oates uh, original character did Coin i thought died he and the millie perkins character did but maybe maybe not uh, what 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 was his name in this gashade story? yeah gashade right yeah perhaps he didn't but but yeah we kind of cut away from him and we see you know the the hitman with his hand presumably smashed to pieces, staggering through Ugh. the wilderness, yeah, um, toward what? I mean, what, what what is his next, you know, landing point? I mean, he's out in the middle of the desert. He's parched. He's wounded. I don't think that's a happy ending by any means. No, it, it, if anything, it shows that even the characters that you may think either deserve to die mm-hmm. or they're going to always be powerful this malignant force in nature right. no they're they're as as vulnerable and and out in the night as any of us you know that this is this isn't uh, anton chigger who's just going to continue on his 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 merry way this is this is someone who was a victim in many ways of his own being misled by Millie Perkins' character. At least I think he could have been misled and used by her. And now he's lost as well. You know, he's done some terrible things when he felt confident, but he's lost that. He almost lost his life and, and maybe still will out there in, the, in nowhere land. But but he's, you know, the strong, malevolent character who at the end is is completely stripped bare. And that's, that's the final image. It's, it's just strange, but... It, it works. It makes me sit and think after it's over. Yeah, it's an enigmatic ending, which again is is not exactly what you're used to seeing at this stage of of the western. I mean, you're you're used to seeing the the, the tall hat riding off into the sunset, or at least a, a clear resolution. You know, good triumphing over evil. Typically, uh, you you get none of that satisfaction here. I think it's pretty unusual for a western of any period. Actually, I mean. Even modern westerns tend to have sort of a throwback quality oh, yeah. to them. Yeah, that... I, I mean, if they if they're aiming to be kind of crowd pleasers, especially now, a western nowadays can't help but be kind of a retro project. You know, yeah, this was kind of at that era where you could still just make a western as a straight ahead. We're just making it because this is an interesting period or setting to make films. And uh, and not have to really explain it or or be regarded as like oh isn't that quaint or anything like that <laughs> but the fact that is they, they took it in some some unusual directions uh but using many of again many of the the familiar plot elements just not wrapping them up in a way that audiences were used to so there was definitely some 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 bravado here and and uh, some some exploration of of new possibilities as far as what you were saying trevor of uh, him not being able, jack nicholson not being able to be the same at the end of uh riding the whirlwind it kind of makes me think of all those characters and even classic westerns that go by a different name and the characters spread rumors about you know maybe he killed a man or something it's kind of feels like the origin story of that kind of classical western archetype of the middle-aged or older man that uh has a dangerous past that is never fully clarified (laughs) yeah that's true how do you think these films work i mean as far as uh sort of your classic at least to me, Saturday afternoon on TV Western, you know, just, just to put it on TV without necessarily putting it in the, you know, in the context of, uh, you know, art house avant-garde, well, it's not avant-garde, it's, or even 60s experimental or, or in the indie cinema. But, uh, you know, you know, there, there's a certain aspect of these films that they could just work as just, you know, putting them on TV as, as kind of, you know, generic Western thrillers that people who like this type of movie would, would enjoy and just kind of not not think especially much of it other than, well, that was good. I mean, you know, do the suspense scenes work in a straightforward manner? Does Is this, is this a film where you have to have a, an art house sensibility to appreciate it? Or, or if you're just a traditional Western film buff, uh, you can get into these just at face value. I think anyone would like riding the whirlwind. It's a. Uh, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I've often thought about like recommending it to my dad. Certainly, who's a big Western fan, uh, or really just anyone. I mean, it's pretty gripping from the opening shot onward. I think the shooting might be a little, little trickier. It's a little bit spacier. I agree, especially with, with the ending being such an enigma and such a. What was that after? After all. 
that was their ultimate fate, though, right? If, if I'm remembering the production yeah. and the, their history, I mean, they they were made and then never got picked up by anyone who would distribute them into theaters and finally bought to be shown on television. And I I did when I watched the shooting, I thought, wow, that was just shown on TV to like people who like westerns, like my dad. Because I can see my dad being really resistant to the shooting, but someone like my brother, my older brother, sitting down to watch it and being really compelled by it, you know, as kind of a kid or a younger generation who's just kind of up for it, um, really getting undertaken by the by by its force and, and, and kind of cast a spell on because it just has that quality. But I can see others who are kind of sitting down because they just love a good gun smoke yeah, or something like that. Yeah, cowboys shoot they, them up, right, right. Mm-hmm, being, being put off and, and upset that it was on. I don't, but I never looked into how these were received on television by general audiences. I don't think the shooting works as well. I mean, it, it, I, I'm glad that it did that and I hope people fell in love with it. But I, I do agree with Scott, right in the whirlwind, I think can get people on board, even people who aren't look, looking at it for any kind of, you know, anything else than just a good chase. Yeah, somewhat archetypically, these uh, films were released first in France theatrically before they made any kind of debut in America, and they went over like gangbusters there. The French loved them. <laughs> oh, I don't remember that. That's cool. But yeah, I, I, it kind of reminds me of the, not not in any other way other than that it's shown on TV, the Fellini documentary that we talked about <laughs> a, a, few, a month or two ago yeah. with Jordan Esso, David, mm-hmm. where it's like... <laughs> My my parents sat down probably some Sunday night and this was on. <laughs> I can't imagine them getting a few oh, minutes into I love it, that thought, yeah. you know. But um, but I can see people being even upset. Like, where is this going with the shooting? But eventually, just think succumbing to it. I hope it. I hope that happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I I think the shooting was a more conventional ending, and especially an ending that isn't quite so bizarre as this kind of, you know, slow mo. You know, all of a sudden, the character we've been following is now looking back at the people who've been chasing him in, with a different shirt on. I mean, it's just like <laughs> you had to make it Warren Oates' <laughs> twin brother, and 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 again, slow it down like the Zapruder film, sh- shot by shot, frame by frame. I mean, couldn't you just have explained yourself a little bit more, <laughs> or made it clear that we're we're chasing this guy's brother up the mountain, and and even the way that whole pursuit ends up it just feels so bizarre like you're really gonna you know get off your horses and just chase him and he's gonna go running up this mountain i mean <laughs> there is such, some kind of sisyphean myth going on here <laughs> that was like this is this is this is uh, unfolding on this abstract plane of reality uh this this alternate dimension it's almost like a twilight zone western uh, when it gets down to it um yeah but you're right you know riding the whirlwind uh you know with with the the nicholson character just kind of bolting off frame and and those final shots it's like okay there's you know it, it it's a it's open-ended ending it's not the same kind of tight resolution that that you typically expect but it feels a little bit easier to swallow and to say okay i guess that's that's where it all wound up you know (laughs) the shooting definitely is a head scratcher did either of you pick up at all that he had a twin brother because in the commentary they say that roger corman insisted that they kind of underline that detail but i didn't really pick on a up on it at all no i i don't think it's 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 kind of confusing because it's really not well articulated i think you almost have to watch it a couple times or at least replay the ending and pay close attention because all you see is the war notes character and and you think it's him at first except he's got a different shirt on than what he's wearing as he's going up the hill and so it, it's it's really and and then there's that very brief sort of plot explication at the very beginning of the film about you know the uh you know the 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 death that happened in town and now there's people after him maybe yeah maybe, maybe. it's 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 very enigmatic and so uh you, you have to really kind of be locked in to pick up on all those details and connect the dots after such a length of time of of just spent in this this kind of blind pursuit i mean you, you see the characters off on this quest, off on this hunt, but you don't exactly know what it is they're looking for for quite a bit of time, and it's never really 
elaborated, at least not with the clarity that you would expect from from most conventional westerns. Again, I I, I watch enough of these, you know, um, ambivalent, open ended, somewhat, uh, you know, uh, non explanatory films that I just kind of learn to go along with it and just say, okay, I'll just let them lead me along and take me where it will. But with the western, you know, you sometimes expect the 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 white hats and the black hats and everything kind of falls into place. And you know, yeah, here I didn't necessarily expect that, but that was kind of the root of my question: is like, how does this go down with people who really are expecting more of the the traditional uh, Western storyline to unfold? Well, and I I think that you're right. Where it's the length of time between the beginning and the end, and the fact that for most of that time, yeah, there is a pursuit, but it's so much more concerned with the character dynamics between the ones we're seeing all the time with very little attention spent to who they're pursuing or why. I mean, that's always a question, but it's not really there. But, and I remember the first time I watched it thinking, wait, what just happened at the end? You know, thinking, who was that? But I've, I, this is, I really like this one. I've watched it several times over the years, and now I feel like it's fairly clear. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I can see the pieces. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're there, but they, they certainly aren't obvious the first time. But, but you know, you get the sense that, you know, the, the brothers out there probably killed uh, maybe Millie Perkins' husband and child or someone related to her. She's now after him. He's run off, and it, it's his brother. And he, he senses that throughout and is kind of worried, and maybe he's, he's pursuing it partially to try and save his brother, but also because he... You know, there there are other reasons, but... He wants to know what happens, right? I mean, if his brother's being hunted, he wants to at least be a witness to it all. That's kind of how I take it. Yeah, and, and so... But I don't think... I don't think those become... I mean, those are those are in there, but I don't... They're all kind of maybes. And one thing that always gets me is the beginning of the film when he drops off... He, he cuts the hole in the flower... As if to let someone follow him. Yeah, yeah, that's an. I'd never have figured out what that is. The rest of it, I think, there are pieces that make you go, "Oh, that could have be that could be the reason," and probably is. But that flower, uh, that's the part that I still just, um, I don't know, don't know what's going on there. Anyway, it might might not be relevant at all, but or it might explain to everything. It might be the key to just everything. Keep on digging and I, I have, clear, right? I, I have pursued that thread before of wondering you know does he how what's the relationship between him and his brother does he have any ideas did he do something and he's shooing these people on his brother or i I don't think any of them quite fit but i have tried to tried to figure it out (laughs) the the rest of it though i think the pieces are there but i agree because the the movie takes so long to get to the end and it's such a surprise most people aren't probably going to be thinking back to that and realize oh that's his brother hmm. do we want to talk about just the the package as a whole i i mean i kind of made a few comments already but i i really do enjoy the kind of reminiscing of monty hellman reconnecting with a lot of his uh production partners even the uh the interview with millie perkins kind of from a couple of years ago where she's looking back and i mean those are i mean i i can really sort of take a little bit of a vicarious uh, satisfaction myself just thinking about these old friends and comrades kind of getting together and reliving some pretty exciting memories from their youth and and uh, talking about the the adventure of making these movies uh, and uh, I, you know to me there is a kind of a almost a diary or a kind of a a reminiscence effect here that is is really very very sweet and very enjoyable just to kind of sit in on these uh you know very affectionate conversations sometimes these folks have not spoken with each other in a few decades uh but you know the memories and and the uh the anecdotes and the insights all kind of come flooding back once they have an opportunity to kind of just kind of reconnect and and uh to me, that that really adds a lot of value to this this disc beyond just the two films, which you know maybe they were available in various VHS or DVD formats. But the image here is is really beautiful, and the supplements really do kind of paint a picture of a bygone era that wasn't all that long ago, but certainly different enough uh, from what Hollywood is like nowadays. 
Yeah, I've only had time to do the two commentary tracks, but I really think they're pretty exceptional. Usually when you get a filmmaker and a scholar on the same track, one or the other ends up taking over the bulk of it. Uh, but here they're really well balanced and seem to all have genuine respect for one another. There's not like too much kind of fanboyishness on the part of the scholars. There's not too much kind of like, I am the ultimate authority on this on the part of uh, Hellman, uh, which is I think is the dynamic that usually sprouts up in these sort of things. They just seem like they all generally love movies and are generally curious to dig into what makes these so good. Uh, it's, it's, they're both really great lessons. Yeah. Oh, and, and these are pretty humble projects. I mean, yeah, again, the, 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 congruence of the cast that came together and what these you know at the time pretty young actors went on to accomplish that's that's quite remarkable but you know you get roger corman in there you get the calvin johnson not the uh, former nfl player but the the horse wrangler and the guy who kind of did some of that stuff of of, of kind of adding some of that yeah, you know, authentic Old West verisimilitude, you know, uh, into the mix and and teaching some of these actors who had never been on a horse before how to actually ride. He actually has some very complimentary things to say about Millie Perkins. I mean, of all the people, she seemed to be the most at ease up on top of a horse and, and cut on the quickest. So just it, really fun little anecdotes and, and uh, illustrations from uh, fr- from, you know, the making of process in these films. I, I enjoyed that part of it quite a bit. I think it's a pretty tremendous package too, and I will bring. I brought it up a couple of times, but I think the essay is one of my favorite that I've read in a long time. Uh, did either of you have a chance to get through it? Uh, I read it way back when, but I, I didn't read it uh, for this episode. But yeah, it's a nice nudge. I'll, I'll kind of go ahead and follow through and yeah. appreciate that. Hang it up on your wall <laughs> and <laughs> and take it. Take a look at it. You know, spread it out on your kitchen table tomorrow morning yes, for breakfast yeah. and read my road map there. Pain. you can read it right. while you get ready for bed <laughs> <laughs> it's such a pain but but i do think it's a worthwhile essay that you should read on your phone or something <laughs> uh i also really like the typeface on the spine and wish they'd kept that for the front actually other than that i think the artwork's pretty great yeah that kind of sketchy uh you know inky you know yeah drawn style <laughs> yeah it's it's a nice package uh you know, I wonder if this this one has been lost in the shuffle a little bit here. I, I appreciate the fact that we actually dedicated an episode to these films. It's not exactly in the uh, you know Christmassy spirit of things, and it's not really seasonal. But uh, it's it's a great uh, great uh, direction to turn our focus, nonetheless. Yeah, I never see anybody picking these up in the flash sale hall pictures or the Barnes and Noble sale hall pictures. But really, I I hope people will be encouraged to, you know, they. They, they, you may have to get them out of the freezer section. They, they, you know, they're they're old. They're not fresh. But, but I, I definitely think that uh, people should be picking them up. I feel like any time you can get away with two films for the price of one, especially on Criterion, that you're getting away with murder. Uh, yeah. Especially when they're both so great. I mean, this package or uh, the only son there was a father. Uh, I'm trying to think of some others that kind of. I know there's a lot of films that are as bonus films, but when they're kind of presented with equal weight, I think it adds a bit more class to the whole package. Well, and and they're nice, digestible films, eighty-one and eighty-two minutes totally. respectively, and, but but eminently rewatchable. I mean, you know, I think Trevor, I, we've all mentioned we've watched these films several times over the years, and yeah, you know, I, I will say there is a certain pleasure in that Saturday afternoon cowboy show matinee. <laughs> you can even make it a double feature if you want. I've, I've watched them both back to back before, and uh, you know, so this is this is a, this is one that uh, isn't just going to sit there taking up space on your shelf. Uh, get into it and enjoy it for what it is well i think we'll leave it there then uh any last words anything you guys want to plug online or are we good well i think we can just kind of give listeners uh, a little heads up that we will be doing our end of the year best of 2017 episodes for criterion cast pretty soon so you'll be hearing some familiar voices as well as maybe voices of a couple people who maybe have or haven't been on the uh, the year-end episodes before so we uh, definitely enjoy uh, reviving those old traditions, uh, old Lang Syne and <laughs> season greetings <laughs> and all of that as we wind up uh, what's been a pretty impressive year yet again in the annals of Criterion Collection fandom. I know, I'm having trouble picking some favorites. You've given me a, a deadly deadline for editing these now, editing these now, David. <laughs> <laughs> Get on it, man. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, well, thanks for joining me, guys, listeners. Thanks for listening, and we'll definitely uh, catch you at the end of your episode. I'm having trouble picking, but by then I'll have come up with something, I'm sure. Yeah, with the force of pressure, we'll, we'll exactly. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs>